Hello everyone and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. This is the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now here at this curious nexus point, we explore the strange, the unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the little spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Well, after talking to Tamara Jacobs last week, I quickly learned that I was making several mistakes, which I don't intend to repeat. I have never given out my contact information on the air. I'm going to do that right now because I personally I find that weird, wild, wacky, and to be perfectly honest, a little fringe. Website, DanielJGlenn.com. The hub for all things Daniel J. Glenn. On that website, you can find a link to FascinatingNouns.com which is the homepage of the podcast you're currently listening to. I have another podcast, which I don't update as frequently as I should, called The Stell Experience. Now, that is a podcast about my travels and adventures. Exploring a little town called Stell, Illinois. I have a Twitter account for all you Twitter followers, at Daniel J. Glenn. It's the way to get to me, find out about new shows, all kinds of little things. And I have a blog called The Funk Freedom Press. You can check all that stuff out. Please do. Incredible material there, if I do say so myself. On to the show. James D. Now, I find this man interesting for several reasons. Um, but he, he's he got a lot of interesting stories. Um, specifically today, we're going to talk about the 60s and his adventures in Berkeley during the whole free love uh, hippie movement. Um, he was right there at the forefront, and I just have... <laughs> gotten lost in his stories a few times, and I thought it was time to bring him on. And I like him better because he's not a historian. He he actually lived these things. He's just a guy telling his experiences from his point of view. Um, well, that brings us to the definition of the day. I'm going to hit this one right on the nose, smack on the schnoz. I'm going to go with hippie, which is a noun, a fascinating noun. And there's a person, especially of the late 1960s, who rejected the established institutions and values and sought spontaneity, direct personal relations, expressing love, and expanded consciousness. Now, this is often expressed externally in the uh, wearing of casual folksy clothing and of beads, headbands, garments, etc. And I don't think that's an all-encompassing definition. As a matter of fact, I think it's tragically flawed, but we're going to get to some of that very, very soon. Why don't we start right now? James, thanks for being here. This is one of my favorite time periods. You know, uh, I think this is... This is the time period, you know, the, the generation before was called the greatest generation, you know. But once the 60s came along, you know, it was a group of people who were rebelling against that great generation, but who were also making their mark um, in, in great ways, you know, politically, you know, in, in metaphysics and in all, all the different areas. Like they were making their mark, which was a completely, you know, it was a 90 degree turn, 80, 180 degree turn from the generation before. And you, you're, you, what's kind of cool about you is that you're not only, uh, you're in, in some ways a historian because you you know the dates, you know the times, because you were integral in most of this stuff, but you have the experiences. Uh, you know, you, you were there, and I think, you know, as we talked earlier, the important thing here is to capture the essence of the 60s, the spirit of the time, what people were thinking. And I think you really do that more than, you know, a stodgy old history professor, you know what I mean? Um, so let's, you know, let's talk about the, the time frame we're talking about here. Uh, this is the hippie movement. Right. Um, and I've kind of roughly placed it between the assassination of JFK and 
the Manson murders, which is really, that was the escalation of the hippie movement into everything that it wasn't supposed to be. And that was the end, I think, you know, of everything. Um, so what do, you, what do you think about that time period? I mean, is that pretty accurate? I think it's accurate, except that you'd have to say that the genesis of the hippie movement, and we certainly didn't start out thinking we were a movement, right. uh, nor did we have the name hippie attached to us, um, began earlier. And it began with the clear realization for me personally and for a lot of people uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the realization that this thing could really blow up on us, that, that it was not necessarily going to turn out well. And, you know, we were somewhat aware, I was personally aware of just how close we came to a nuclear conflagration um, in 1962. Um, we know now that we came much closer than any of us knew. Right. I mean, much, much closer. It could right. happen easily. And the only reason it didn't happen is because of a couple of very heroic people did not follow orders. Otherwise, it would have happened. Right. And so anyway, that's really when it began. It was the realization that the uh, values of our parents um, and the what seemed like a very stable world, the 1950s world, was not nearly as stable and safe as we were led to believe. Right. So right around, for whatever reason, right around 63, 62, 63 is when this whole thing kind of happened. Um, So what were you doing at the time? Well, 62, 63, I was still in high school. Yeah. Um, But the the Cuban Missile Crisis literally woke me up because we had an air raid siren Mm -hmm. uh, 100 feet from our house, Mm -hmm. and it went off early in the morning. And... um, that was the Cuban Missile Crisis for me. And we'd been through nuclear drills for the whole time I was growing up. Duck and, and roll under your, under your oh, desk. Yeah, so I got under my bed. <laughs> right, and I yeah. figured, okay, the blast is going to come through the window. My bed's going to shield me to some extent. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I did. And I waited for an hour after yeah. the air raid siren went off. So it was a literal uh, awakening. Um, it passed, and we didn't take it too seriously for very long. But the next thing that happened, it seemed to us, was that Kennedy was assassinated. And, uh, of course, that was a major event. I was not in the United States at the time. My family had moved to Belgium. Mm. Uh, My dad took a, my stepfather took a uh, job as a nuclear uh, research engineer. Oh, wow. At Moldonk, Belgium. Uh, He was um, pretty high up in the food chain when it came to participation in the Manhattan Project. He helped develop the first uh, nuclear weapons um, uh, in Chicago and then came, then worked uh, at the Lawrence Radiation Laboratory in Berkeley, which is where he met my mother. And they were married in 1961. So he was very close to all of this. And certainly the moral responsibility he felt for having created helped create nuclear weapons was a heavy one. It was responsibility he felt very right. heavily. So you were tied into this from the beginning. So if the, if the threat the of nuclear annihilation is what started this whole chain of events, I mean, you are you were literally mm-hmm. in the family of the genesis. Yeah, that's correct. Genesis that's it. correct. I mean, my stepfather worked with Fermi and Teller and all those people. Did he know Oppenheimer? Oh, yeah, sure. He knew wow. all these people. He didn't respect Oppenheimer. He thought Oppenheimer had copped out. <laughs> so in, Re- in what way? Well, in the sense that he um, kind of lost his nerve. He didn't, uh, he, he felt that once you went down this road of creating nuclear weapons, uh, you had to use them, number one. Yeah. You had to fall through with it. 
that's a much longer story, though. And a little bit, I know. <laughs> a little bit uh, aside from the, our conversation. Too. No, yeah. This is this is. I just wanted to peek down that trail really quickly because sure. that's incredible. I mean, that's a. Yeah. Uh, I just got finished reading a book on Area Fifty One to talk about the Manhattan Project and all the you know Project Paperclip is right on you know and yes. all that stuff. I yes, mean, exactly. Project Project Paperclip. Uh, everything that came out of the early creation of the CIA and the alternate, uh, the shadow government is what we call it. All the things that came out of that uh, had a lot to do with, you know, those early events. And as you probably know, I mean, a, a lot of the German engineers were brought through the Operation Paperclip right. into the research that yeah. took place at the highest levels in the United States after the war. So. That is incredible. We we may have another sit down about that whole thing. <laughs> um, so, but let's let's get back to let's get back to you. So, you were in so, Europe at the time. So this is '64, yeah. Yeah, well, '63. When, when Kennedy was assassinated, uh, we had gone to Europe in. Um, so I guess we left in July, and I went to a private school in Moldonk, Belgium. Uh, there were no other Americans. Well, there were two other Americans there. I take that back. But there were four Americans out of a student body of perhaps 400. Wow. So we were a distinct minority. Most of my friends were German because they could speak English better than the other students. Right. And they didn't have the French uh, disdain for Americans. Uh, <laughs> uh, the French were So that was still going on then, right after Normandy, you know, forget uh, the uh, <laughs> freeing France from the Germans. There was still that disdain for America? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yes. Trust me, bananas. French were, the French were... Um, really beholden to the United States. And I think I actually had something to do with it because the United States had come in and, right. you know, just yes. deposed the Vichy government. And uh, a lot of the French were collaborators, and I think they were embarrassed about it. But uh. they considered Americans stupid, and they considered me and my sisters stupid. Incredible. So, okay. you know, stupid Americans. Yeah. And all the stereotypes that they applied to us were galling, to say the least. And I tried not to be very vocal about it because. And you're um, a bright guy. What do you, you know? I mean, like reasonably, you, you but know? you know, uh, I wasn't sophisticated enough. Oh, you know, pardon so. me. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> so that was so that, this is a difficult time in school too. Now, here's the flip side of yeah, that. Yeah. When we heard of the Kennedy assassination, we were at a party, uh, a party given by a, a girl named Camille, and Camille um, was a very. Uh, very hip French girl, mm. and her family was prototypically upper middle class French. Mm. At the time of their party, um, her father was off with his uh, uh, lover in the Alps, and her mother was there giving mm. the party. And you know, she had accepted long ago that her parents had the, her mm. parents would stay together, yeah. but they would have lovers outside the marriage. And this yeah. was a very French thing. Yeah, uh, that's how the French still do it as far as I know wow. but anyhow Camille was very hip she was yeah. the cool one of the cool kids at this yeah. high school and so she gave this party and uh, the flip side of the disdain for Americans was admiration for American culture huh. and so uh, it sounds really ancient the um, the twist was a new dance then okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a particular way of doing it so they all copied me okay, oh so, wow so at this party they were wanting to learn how to do the twist the way real Americans do it you're like John Travolta back then so, anyway that's yeah. how that was. <laughs> wow. So we were at the party and I don't remember what time it was but it was late in the evening um, I would say uh, 
ten thirty, eleven, eleven thirty, when we heard the news, and the party broke up, and they insisted on stopping the party. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember, frankly, being that upset by Kennedy's assassination. The impact of it was somewhat muted by the fact that I wasn't in America at the time. Mm-hmm. I know friends at the high school I went to, El Cerrito High, said that people were just in grief. I mean, you know, people were just crying and girls were screaming and it was really, it hit them hard and it happened during the school day. Yeah. So it was the kind of thing that, uh, I mean, everybody went home, but it was a a much more major or direct hit for people who were here in the United States than it was for me personally at that moment. Wow. Um, That's incredible. So that was the beginning and you were, um, so when you were in Europe, how did that, did any of that kind of influence the path you were going to take? Was it European thoughts and ideas that kind of crafted your involvement in the movement or to become? I wouldn't say so, no. Um, I'd say that had no impact on my later involvement. My later involvement became it was an accident, really. Hmm. Yeah. So how did you get, so when did you come back to the States and kind of you know get... Well, I came back to the United States in the fall of 1964, and uh, it was my senior year in high school. Mm. And the more advanced students at uh, El Cerrito High were allowed to take classes at UC Berkeley during our senior years. So half of my uh, coursework was at UC Berkeley. Um, I took a course in calculus, a course in philosophy, um, various other courses at UC Berkeley. While While 17? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I was 17 at the time. And um, it, was an, uh, it was the beginning of the free speech movement. The day I arrived on the Berkeley campus was the day the free, sp- free speech movement started. With Mario Savio and, and John Baez playing on the steps of Prespal Plaza. And, uh, you know, it was just really a, um, an exciting and... Uh, rebellious group of people who had gathered on campus at that time and it was very politically motivated the free speech movement had to do with the wanting to get permission to organize um, uh, for one um, uh, trips down south to aid the freedom riders and register black voters in the southern states Uh, and that was considered um, too much by the people that ran the University of California at the time. In local parentis was still the prevailing philosophy. And that is that the parents of our students have trusted us to be parents in their stead. Us meaning the college and the institution. Yeah, so and so the beginning, that changed has, that changed completely. That doesn't exist now, that attitude does not exist now. But it was very strong in 1964. And um, the people who gathered and took part in the free speech movement were universally reviled by the authorities. Um, <laughs> so when, now, before we get right into it, what mm-hmm. would you say, in, were, could you encapsulate all the ideas that kind of went into it? Because you're talking about free speech and then there's a the civil right movement which is timed in there. It's coming out you of know, that, this, yeah. And, and then, you know, there was a, and then, then there's also the aspect, the more fun aspect, which is sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, the kind of the free beliefs, you know, kind of, because um, that's kind of more when people think of hippies, you know. More it is that. what people think of with respect to hippies, but that came later. And that was because the first part was the political aspect. That's what started everything. Um, political meaning civil rights, free, um, and plus this is also right around the time that the age limit to vote is going down, correct? 
And that happened or was that later. later? Was that that happened later. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember exactly when that happened, but it was later. Okay. We weren't allowed to vote at 18, certainly, and we had no say politically. Uh, those who were drafted, you know, before age 21 had no say in the process, yeah. the political process. And we were expected to be, um, I don't know, compliant, willing, you know, pawns yeah. of the, whatever the government wanted to do. Now, why do you think this started at UC Berkeley? Well, of all places, I guess. I guess you'd have to understand Berkeley to understand why the answer to that question sounds uh, a little silly to someone from Berkeley, because I was born in Berkeley. Okay. <laughs> Berkeley, Berkeleyans uh -huh. think that Berkeley is the center of the world. Uh -huh. So if something were to start anywhere, of course it would start in Berkeley. Mm. That would be the place where it would start. So why it would start in Berkeley? Well, of course it started in Berkeley. Everything starts in Berkeley. Berkeley is the center of the world. So. Well, New York thinks that. You know, Paris just thinks that. You. London thinks that. So, so uh, well, but, but I mean, why do you think so? I mean, was there um, was there a type of people who lived in California at the time? Was there, um, you know, California was a very forward-thinking state. A lot of people it moved is, out here. It is, but most there. people don't realize that Berkeley at that time was a Republican town. Uh, it had a Republican mayor and uh, majority Republican population. It was a very conservative town. Yeah. So Berkeley was not the hotbed of uh, what we've come to see as modern liberalism or progr the progressive movement. It wasn't that way at all. Oh. Berkeley was, um, the only thing progressive about Berkeley was the presence of the radiation lab, Lawrence Radiation Lab, where as I say, my parents both worked. And, um, a kind of sense that um, Berkeley at that time and still remains uh, the best public university in the world. I mean, the preeminent public university in the world. Yeah. And so Berkeley that, people are justifiably proud of that. Sure. So I would say those were the two factors. But the things that led to, and we're talking about hippies here, yeah. so I'd like to get around back around to that a little bit. Sure. One of the things that existed in Berkeley at the time, and um, uh, it was sort of an extension of the New York Greenwich Village uh, folk rock, folk scene, folk music scene, okay. uh, were the, was a um, uh, sort of a, well, there were two things, uh, a little club called the Cabal Creamery, which was co-founded by Chan Laughlin, who mm. we'll talk more about later. Okay. Um, and that, here I'm going to refer to my notes because this is sort of predates. Um, For those who cannot see at home, yeah, uh, the Jabberwock. Walter's yeah. cheating on his. On his I'm computer. cheating. I've, it's not part of my <laughs> my memory, so it's harder to speak uh, just extemporaneously about the Jabberwock and the Cabal Creamery. Yeah. But those were both well attended, and they pretty much were the West Coast anchors of the folk music scene. Mm. So folk music had a real presence in Berkeley at these two night spots. Now there's mm. also, you, we also, um, in in 65, the Red Dog Saloon yes. came into play, and that's where things kind of got rolling with the music scene. That's yeah? where, that was really the genesis of hippies, of the hippie movement at the Red Dog Saloon. And that was in Nevada, yes? Yeah, uh, Virginia City, mm -hmm. right. 
So not in Berkeley. Not in Berkeley, hmm. but what very do you think connected. About that? What do you think about all, that? Well, they were all Berkeley people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why not in Berkeley then? Why not bring it to the city? That's a good question. Thank I mean, you. Chan in particular, Chan Laughlin was, uh, as I say, one of the co-founders of the Cabal Creamery, and he was under a lot of legal pressure. The Berkeley police were trying to get rid of these places because they were considered subversive. The other thing that existed hmm. around, right around that time was a, uh, an overtly communist radio station that uh, broadcast uh, from a little tiny hole-in-the-wall studio on Shattuck Avenue. And my friends and I used to go there, and they called it uh, the Midnight Special. Yeah. And they would... Um, this, isn't the ham ra- this isn't ham radio. This is on regular radio. Regular radio. Yeah, yeah, regular radio. Yeah. That's great. And my father was extremely upset that I would go there and so listen, Joe McCarthy, listen sure. to these communists. Because <laughs> right. yeah. they were. They were communists. Yeah. One of my classmates, uh, <laughs> Bob Mandel, his father was... Uh, uh, one of the preeminent communists was called before the House of Un-American Activities and really? all that. And he lived, you know, like a block and a half from us and went to my high school. So, so you tied into the Red Scare, too, yeah, Joe right, McCarthy. Right, right. Oh, so Berkeley had these subversive elements, but Chan would not have been successful doing what he did at the Red Dog Saloon in Berkeley. It, mm. would, have been, it would have attracted too much legal attention. You have to realize that what happened at the Red Dog Saloon was absolutely outrageous. I mean, Chan and... You have to open that a little bit. What does that mean? Well, Chan and the people he got together, I don't know exactly what the legal arrangement was, but they had the use of the Red Dog Saloon that summer. Um, This was the summer of 1965, the year I was graduating from high school. Mm -hmm. It was a year after, uh, well, nine months after I began classes at Berkeley. And that was the time when I decided I had to get out of uh, my parents' house, and so I moved into an old, uh, really derelict building two blocks from campus uh, at 1915 University Avenue. And it was a building where you could rent a studio apartment for $45 a month with all the utilities included. $45? $45 a month. No electric bill, no gas bill, no water bill. Pay your forty-five bucks a month. No, mo- no moving charges. Nothing. You no first pay, and last. No, no first and last. Pay your forty-five bucks, and you move into a studio apartment. Wow. Now, apartment is probably an exaggeration of what it was. <laughs> I mean, it was really dumpy. Yeah. They had done no maintenance on it for twenty years. The lady who owned it was in a coma, oh and she, her estate <laughs> managed it, yeah. and everybody knew this is where you could move if you had no money. Right. So. The owner's in a, had a stroke. What's she going to do? Yeah, and so I shared it with this other guy. So we each paid $22 a month or whatever it wow. was to live in this place. And yeah. So, but Chan um, got these people together and he went up and he created this saloon. And right about that time, Chan got into dressing like a 19th century bandit. I mean, he grew his hair kind of long <laughs> and he had all Western apparel, wore cowboy hats. Uh, a black cowboy hat, I assume, he's a bandit. I don't remember, but at any rate, he, he had yes. a certain style. Yeah. And Sounds Chan like was that. also um, a real Lothario. I mean, he was a very handsome guy, and every girl in Berkeley wanted to sleep with him, so yeah. he had a following. And he could uh, marshal the, the resources to make this happen. Now, in 1965, Chan was um, about 27, 28 years old. So he was in his 20s, a little older than I was. And um, he got this Red Dog Saloon thing going, and he started to invite 
some of the groups, the musical acts, the groups that he liked. Uh, Grateful Dead weren't known as the Grateful Dead at the time. They were known as the Warlocks. Uh, we had the Jefferson Airplane, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Quick Silver Messenger Service. All these people gathered at the uh, Red Dog Saloon. And they didn't just gather there. They, it was like there was no difference between the audience and the people playing on the stage. It was a big party. That was the spirit of it. It was a big party. Musically, or were they singing, or was it just like a big free-for-all? A big free-for-all would probably be the best description of it. But not dangerous, because like nowadays when people would see that, the cops would be called and someone would well, get that's, stabbed. That was I mean, the advantage of having it in Virginia City. Mm. So when Chan, when Chan would come in with his firearms, and he was he was armed quite a bit of the time, <laughs> and the fire, <laughs> fire a few rounds through the ceiling, and plaster would start falling down, nobody complained about it. He does sound like a 19... Well, yeah, I mean, it was a complete... And the girls, Sam. <laughs> the girls dressed like 19th century prostitutes. And, you know, I mean, they were loose anyway. But, you know, I mean, they, they really dressed the part. Yeah. And so it was a wild time. Yeah. Now, right about that time, you have Owsley Stanley, uh, who's the lar- who became the largest producer of LSD on the West Coast. And he's making LSD in small batches. Um, uh, in Berkeley and his other labs. Uh, it's not illegal then. Yeah. And he ships a whole bunch of LSD up to the Red Dog Saloon. So everybody gets loaded on acid. So you have a combination of costuming, LSD, of course pot, which was you know, well, that's, pretty yeah. minor compared right. to the other <laughs> stuff that was going on. And this is really, this is really pure LSD. It's not street grade LSD. We're talking about hits. It's like pharmaceutical grade. It's like pharmaceutical chemical. grade. He, yeah. he was a good enough chemist. He learned chemistry from his girlfriend. Melissa was a major in chemistry at UC Berkeley and so Owsley uh, made very good acid and it did compare with the best that Sandoz made. Sandoz was the official uh, supplier of acid for all the experiments that were done during the 60s. What, and this Timothy Leary was at Berkeley too? Right? No, Timothy Leary was, was at Harvard. Harvard, I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. There was no connection at that time, uh, except that most of us had read uh, what Leary and Alpert wrote about taking LSD, and we were intrigued by it. And the other thing is that most people don't realize that I would say better than half of the Berkeley's upper middle class consisted of adults, people in the 30s, 40s, 50s, who had taken LSD because it was a transcendent, it was marketed or pr- promoted as a transcendent experience. Like a mystical element to it yeah. that people... So yeah, so my, my stepfather's uh, peers at Lawrence Radiation Lab had all taken LSD and <laughs> were ecstatic about it, had raved about the effects of it. And one of the things that came out of that was that um, these people were all atheists, pretty much as I was raised, I was raised an atheist. And that's a thing to really understand about the hippie movement. It really was, it became a religious movement. It became a spiritual quest. A religious in the sense that people who had no spiritual perspective up to that point, or who were distinctly anti-religious, particularly against organized religion, my stepfather was Jewish, but had, his father had rejected Judaism. And most of the people up at uh, the Rad Lab, they were, they were heavy-duty scientists, and they'd pretty much rejected standard religion. So they come upon this substance that all of a sudden gives them a metaphysical experience 
in a half hour after they take it, they're, they're meeting God. Right. You know, it, <laughs> right. it, yeah. it changes your perspective on things. Yeah. And so things change very, very rapidly. So anyhow, Owsley ships a whole bunch of asset up to the Red Dog, and these musical groups start taking LSD while they're playing, and then the whole audience is loaded on LSD. And we're not talking about little street 50 to 100 micrograms like LSD now. We're talking hits in the... 250 to 350 microgram range, which is wow. enough to dissolve your personality. I mean, you really don't have any structure left when you take 250 to 350 micrograms of LSD. Permanently or at that moment? No, during the trip. During the tri okay. Most people get <laughs> right. some of it back. Right. <laughs> some people yeah. do not, but uh, most Holy people, cow. most people, but why, so, you know, all the rules are gone. I mean, you don't have any structure. You don't have yeah. any idea of what's appropriate or what's not appropriate, and you operate accordingly. Yeah. So if you've got this very intense music happening and you're in an environment where everybody's dressed and acts in completely unconventional ways and there's no law enforcement or anybody to tell you not to do things or to do things, it becomes a free-for-all on every level. And that's what happened at the Red Dog Saloon. Like Burning Man. Well, Burning Man is a later version uh, of it, like a version of all this. Yeah, Burning Man is just a, uh, a modern-day um, stage where the same sort of thing can occur. But yeah. uh, the Red Dog is the beginning of that kind of thing. I honestly don't know a precedent for the Red Dog. I mean, the Red Dog is is original and unique. Yeah. The other thing that happened at the Red Dog is Bill Ham came in and started doing light shows. Oh, so the light shows began at the Red Dog too. They were very primitive, but. You know, when you're on acid, you see all these patterns, and so Bill Ham got the idea that he could get a light projector and do um, uh, little things with water and so on under the projector and, and project them like against the wall okay, with color, and he yeah. put dyes and inks into the water, and all of a sudden you get these swirling patterns projected onto a wall. Well, all that started at the Red Dog. Wow. So summer of 1965 is seminal in a lot of ways. Um, the events at the Red Dog were uh, promoted using posters. So the, all the poster art that came later during San, the, the heyday of hippies in San Francisco began at the Red Dog. The gathering of people to party, not to sit in an audience and watch a performer, but to party with the performers, that began at the Red Dog. It was a very participatory kind of thing, and it had a spiritual perspective and precedent, largely inspired by Chan's earlier um, attendance at peyote meetings with Native mm -hmm. American peoples, mm -hmm. and that began in 1963. It began a year earlier. Um, let, so, let me get one other aspect, because you, you mentioned this one time. So you and Chan actually shared a girlfriend at the time. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, that's I, fair. Um, I wouldn't say we shared Barbara. Um, I mean, Barbara became my girlfriend. Barbara was never Chan's girlfriend. Okay. Barbara was just someone Chan slept with occasionally. But that was kind of, I just kind of wanted to yeah. touch on the, the free love aspect of everything, right. you All know? Right. I mean, so that was kind of... That was kind of one of the aspects where it didn't didn't kind of matter. People didn't get jealous, or it wasn't like a no. Very I mean, open. It, it was considered very poor form to get jealous. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that like that's like such a mind blow, though. You know what I mean? Like it's just. Uh, I'm still that way. I mean, I I don't understand the jealous thing personally. It's just not in me. I mean, I I don't get it. I I just I don't get that. I mean, 
Jealous in general or jealous if someone was sexually involved with a significant other? Both. Really? Yeah. So even so the, these kind of ideals kind of carry on to today as far as the foundation as far of your as beliefs. I'm concerned, yeah. Wow. Okay. I mean yeah. I I mean I get I guess I I'm get. not a typical guy. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm Man, just no not. judgment here, yeah. But, you know, it's that's that's, that's me. So Wow. And I, I wouldn't say it always plays well in contemporary society, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let me ask you one question. Uh, but yeah, oh, Chan, Chan and Barbara had been involved for, off and on for a year or so before I met Barbara. And uh, Barbara thought Chan was probably the most beautiful man she had ever met. Mm -hmm. And he was. I mean, he, was, he had an extraordinary spirit and he was very physically handsome. And he loved... Um, having his entourage of young women to oh, sleep with. <laughs> right. So he had maybe, I don't know how many, if I had to guess, Is it 20, 30, 50 women who he slept with on a regular basis. 50 women that he had a regularly... I'd say so, yeah. Good Lord. I mean, I knew five or ten of them, so... And, uh, and I certainly didn't know all of them. Right. <laughs> you know, so how, how could you? <laughs> anyway, but I was only 18. I was very impressionable. And so yeah. all this was very different than what I had grown up with. Yeah. Um, um, now you had told me some interesting stories about some of the girls you dated. I don't know if, you, if you're comfortable going into them. But like Barbara was an interesting girl in and of herself, right? Barbara was and remains a very interesting person. Um, I didn't appreciate at age 18 how unique she was. She was 24 when I met her. Yeah. Well, 23 maybe. She was five years older than I was. And, um, but she was already a graduate student at UC Berkeley. She got her master's in entomology, so she was very smart. And um, liberated, I suppose, is the best word. Um, her best friends were um, Gary Snyder, uh, a poet, uh, Allen Ginsberg lived in Berkeley at the time, Peter Orlovsky, um, Owsley, Stanley, the LSD manufacturer, um, Neil Cassidy from the Beat Generation. These were all Barbara's friends. And so she had come from an unusual uh, background. Um, I'm not sure of the truth of it. So I've told the story recently and a lady who practices witchcraft tells me that she's, you know, she's, she, the story may not be absolutely true, but what mm -hmm. Barbara told me mm -hmm. <clears throat> was that her grandfather had initiated her into uh, a coven when she was 13. They had a ceremony in the woods and she became a practicing witch at age 13. Age 13. At age 13, yeah. Okay. And um, of course, I'm meeting Barbara 10 years later and yeah. she certainly practiced witchcraft. That there's no question about that. I saw her do it, and I'm pretty sure she used it on me a few times. So, yeah. you know, yeah, she was an unusual person. She was an unusual in a lot of different, a lot of ways. Uh, her father, you know, we're speaking of my father as a nuclear research fellow with, at the highest levels of the Manhattan Project. Her father uh, was an engineer and designed nuclear bombs. No kidding. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, and she was appalled by that when she realized it. She, it caused a permanent rift between her and her family. She considered it a complete sellout that he would build nuclear weaponry as a career. Wow. And during the time I was with her, she broke off all ties with her parents, and when I saw her 30 years later, she'd never spoken to them again. No kidding. Yeah. 
Those are so. strong beliefs. Um, can I can I touch on the witchcraft thing really quickly because sure. I found this fascinating. So she she was a practicing witch, right? And so you did, you saw some things, like you saw her practice it, right? Did anything? I mean, did anything was it work or was it, <laughs> or was it more of like uh, you know was it more of practice? You know, because how X rated can I get here? It, this is this is a free for all here. All right, yeah, if it gets okay. explicit, I make a little mark. It's explicit, <laughs> but I don't censor anybody. All right. Um, Gypsy Snyder was a Berkeley character at the time. He was a motorcycle racer. Uh, Gypsy is uh, Gary Snyder's cousin, Gary Snyder the poet, okay? And Gypsy Snyder lived with um, a really cobra-like woman named Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y. I never knew her full name. Uh, But Jerry was this very beautiful bitch. She was just really awful and she had uh, and Barbara was very upset with Jerry because Jerry wasn't hip enough to allow Gypsy to sleep with Barbara okay all right <laughs> the problems of the time right problems of the time she <laughs> right. was she was just too uptight about that yeah. and Gypsy wanted to sleep with Barbara and so uh <laughs> Barbara got mad at Gypsy, and she made uh, she had been close enough to sleeping with him that she knew his physical attributes. <laughs> so she made a model of his cock out of green wax <laughs> and kept it in a closet, a little closet above our refrigerator. And you and, saw this. This is oh yeah, <laughs> wow. And she cast a spell that rendered Gypsy impotent. Wow. So that if if she couldn't have him, Jerry wasn't going to have him either. <laughs> That's messed up. It was totally messed up. And so it was pretty vindictive and also pretty upsetting to Gypsy. He yeah. didn't know what was going on. And, it, you know, he came to her at a certain point after she had cast this spell, which I witnessed her cast, okay, and um, said, look, I know you're doing something. What are you doing? Because <laughs> I never have this problem. But I... I can't get it up anymore. And, you know, it's like I'm neutered. Yeah. And she said, yeah, well, so. And, you know. Ponied uh, up to it right away. Yeah. Tell tell Jerry she better let you, uh, give you a little bit of freedom or you won't get it back. Wow. So, so it, well, that's incredible. Anyhow, that's the, that's what happened. And this is. I During mean, the first month I was living with Barbara. That's incredible. <laughs> and what's what's funny about that is, I mean, this captures not only the spirit of the time, but you were involved with her at the time when she's casting spells on other men. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean but some, she would bring, you know, Hell's Angels home to sleep with us. So, you know, and it was, like I say, it was pretty free time. And her best friend, Leslie Land, who just passed away, um, the first thing Barbara did. She had known she'd known Leslie back in Michigan, and uh, she introduced me to Leslie as um, her quote unquote old man. Okay, this was a little <laughs> bit silly since I was eighteen, but anyway. right, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, offered me to her so that she could experience having sex with me. <laughs> she's passing you she's along. Like, she was that enamored yeah, with your I abilities. Was, yeah, she thought I was. Um, 
um, pretty special, and so she wanted <laughs> to share. Don't bullshit me here. She don't bullshit me, share. Walter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so did you guys? Did anyone get any schoolwork done during this time period? I mean, no, were, uh, I, I didn't. I dropped out of Berkeley during the time I was living with the first few months I was living with Barbara. Wow, and did a lot of people do that? Was that something yeah, that was more that common? Yeah, was pretty common. Uh, I mean, it seemed totally irrelevant to life, frankly, yeah. and. The other factor that it wasn't just that um, uh, there, it wasn't just that we had a lot of distractions. Uh, when Barbara and I lived in this apartment. I mean, I lived upstairs initially in the $45 a month apartment, and Barbara had the deluxe one bedroom apartment for $55. And wow. I, I moved in with her, but it had an old gas heater okay. that had not been serviced since the 20s. And we found out later that it was leaking carbon monoxide. And I, oh my God. And I, and you know, there's no carbon monoxide detectors then. And, right. And the apartment has exactly one window, or we probably would, which was located right above the bed, or we probably would have died. But the fact <laughs> is that I was sleeping like 18 or 19 hours a day when I wasn't having sex with someone. And <laughs> it, it, I didn't go to class for two months, and wow. I couldn't get caught up. Berkeley's pretty intense. And yeah. I mean, I was taking pretty heavy curriculum. I was taking um, physics and biology and some pretty heavy duty courses. Yeah. So, you know, it was uh, impossible for me to continue. Yeah. And I didn't officially drop out. I just never went back. Just I didn't just, show up. That was it. Yeah. Stop. So um, were the were your parents paying for it and then they just cut you off the next year? Or were you paying for it and like you just decided not well, to go the next year? Or at Berkeley, there was no money involved at that time. Tuition was free, and I supported myself. I mean, my whole twenty-two dollars a month in rent um, by working at uh, the Gill Track down in Albany. I I assisted a research fellow who was doing research with silkworms, so I'd go in and help him feed the silkworms and that kind of thing. Wow. And they paid pretty well. So yeah. I could work, I don't know, 30 hours a week, a month rather, 30 hours a month. And a month? Was, you know, 30 hours a month was plenty for me to live on. <laughs> and they let you have that kind of loose schedule? Oh, yeah, sure. No problem? Yeah. It was a couple hours a day to go in and feed the silkworms. <laughs> <laughs> so life was very easy. I mean, you have to realize we didn't need much money. There was nothing... I mean, even having a car, nobody required you to have car insurance. Yeah. That was unknown, pretty much. I mean, most people I knew didn't have car insurance. Gas was 19 cents a gallon at Simus Brothers. Holy cow. You know, my rent was $50, but Barbara paid that. After I moved in with her, I never paid rent again. Um, I was sort of a gigolo, really. <laughs> so, you know, I was a kept man. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like? Is that, has that ever oh, happened since? that was since? great fun. Yeah. <laughs> we moved from that apartment... <laughs> A house came available. Uh, they were they were uh, building BART at the time, getting ready to build BART. And so That's the they, public transportation system in San Francisco, right? Yes, yeah, right. And so they bought this uh, tract of houses uh, at the corner of what is now Martin Luther King Boulevard and Ashby Avenue. Okay. And I got word that one of these houses that was going to be torn down was going to be it was a four bedroom house and it was going to be available for twenty five dollars a month. So I arranged to rent it and I moved two girlfriends into the house um, Barb well three including but she was my old lady so we right, lived sure. in the front bedroom Mary lived in the back bedroom and Connie lived in the other bedroom and so it was kind of my harem 
Wow. And was everyone sleeping together? Like, were they? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Or rather, I was sleeping with all three women. Yeah. The women weren't sleeping together. That didn't happen quite then. Later, but not then. But not then. (laughs) (laughs) And Connie had a boyfriend, Bob Keeler, who moved in too. So that was her primary love. Yeah. But, uh, and, well, it's all very complicated. There's a lot of of people. Very Jerry Springer-ish. Very lot of lines drawn. Well, it wasn't Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer, that's everybody getting jealous and being assholes. Uh, That's true. We were having fun with it, and... Barbara really liked Mary and really liked Connie, and they, the girls all liked each other. I mean, they had a good time together. Yeah. So I was just their shared love interest. Wow. Um, so um, now this, this, so this, the movement kind of took a turn for the worse at some point where people kind of took everything to the extreme, right? So there were a lot of, like, dropouts, a lot of homeless people. Well, yeah, but we're only up to 1965. I mean, that's so this is still the two fun. or three years down the road. Okay, yeah. so what's what else is going on? Why the VW buses and bugs? Let me ask you that, since we're talking about cars. Why, why was that the hallmark of the, the movement? Well, VW buses, because you could fit a lot of people in them, and they still got good gas mileage. And at 19 cents a gallon, a lot of people could go a lot of miles for very little money. Yeah. Uh, so... That's the primary reason. The other thing is that you could sleep in them. You know, you could take them to the beach mm. and sleep in them. You could put surfboards on the top. You could do whatever. And they were fun to decorate, and they were cheap. I mean, they came in, uh, I think they were available in the United States starting in 1952. So for by, by 1965, there were a lot of old ones. Mm. And you could buy them for, I don't know, 150 bucks. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's move along. I don't want to run out of time before we before we move along. So you only got an hour. We haven't well, gone very far. Well, let's so so <laughs> let's so in my notes, I have a 1967. Can we jump there? You guys went to Puerto Vallarta. Uh, yeah, that was at the end of Barbara's and my time together. Okay, right so, at the very end. So what what um the, the fun thing about here is that you were uh you had some exposure to some of the most interesting people in the world. So this was international at this point. If you're in Mexico. I guess, yeah. yeah technically, it's international. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you know much about uh, um, oh, Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy sure, and yeah. all these people? Yeah. Okay, well, those you know, Neil was one of Barbara's friends. So. Oh, wow. Um, he was around a lot during that period, and I first met Neil in late 1965 at a party at the Grateful Dead's house. Um, maybe it was a little later... That might have been 66. Yeah, summer of 66. Was and you knew them. You knew the Grateful Dead. You they lived them. around the corner from our apartment on university. So, As the Warlocks or as the Grateful Dead? They were transitioning Transition. right about that time. But we'd go over there, and Owsley was putting together, uh, uh, I mean, he, would, he sold white lightning in little gelatin capsules, okay? And so after he created the acid, he had to have someone to cap the powder. He'd mix it in this free-floating powder. Mm-hmm. And so the powder had acid in it, and somebody had to put it in the caps. So the Grateful Dead would be playing, like, where that lamp is, 20 feet from us. Mm-hmm. And we'd have had a big, long picnic table, and we'd be capping the acid at the table, um, getting ready for it to go out to the masses. <laughs> and uh, so the Dead were our entertainment while we capped acid. And then Owsley would take us to have early morning 
uh, lunch or dinner at uh, Little Black, Little at Sambo's, which was a very politically incorrect restaurant. Right. So, did you guys get high from the powder touching? Oh your yeah, fingers? you can't cap acid and not breathe it, and you really? breathe it, you get totally zonked. Yeah, absolutely. really. So, yeah. did your workmanship suffer towards the end? It's not that hard to put powder in capsules but yes i didn't say certain, it was hard <laughs> after a certain point you are no longer interested in doing it you just stop doing it <laughs> yeah so watching the grateful dead so, was like keeping the tv on while you're yeah jerry garcia was there and pig pen and phil lesh and bob yeah. weir and so they're all over there jamming in the corner and the, all the walls are covered with pink fiberglass for soundproofing and we're going till two or three in the morning yeah you know in this residential neighborhood on berkeley way so. <laughs> and this is so the the center is all you know the center of this movement is kind of attributed to hate Ashbury. That's uh, oh, later. Let's right. later. Oh, was it later? Yeah, yeah, really. Because I always thought it was kind of interesting that mm. that the center of the free love movement was hate in Ashbury. Yeah. I mean, it seems yeah, kind of strange. Yeah, it's kind of a, a, tr a f it's a pretty forced, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, coincidence, I mean, it, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, because it was not spelled the same way, but it just seems like it's, no. Even mm. even at that time, they would want it to be somewhere else, you know. Uh. Hate Ashbury just happened to be a neighborhood where you could rent all these really cheap Victorians. Like the reason hippies lived where they lived, it, our building where you could rent an apartment for $45 a month, utilities included, the house in the four bedroom house that we got for $25 a month, we went where the cheap real estate was. And Hate Ashbury was where there were a lot of inexpensive housing available. It cost practically nothing, and the communal houses, for a big communal house during that era, it'd rent for $120 a month, and you could fit wow. 20, 30 people in it. 20 and 30 people? Yeah, I mean, it might have eight bedrooms, maybe only one bathroom, but... Wow. Uh, um, so that's at least three people in a room, at the very least. Uh, well, Plus. some people had their own rooms. Uh, I mean... Every room was used as a bedroom. I mean, there were, there's no living room, dining room. Every room was a bedroom. Right? Except the bathroom. Except the bathroom, which yeah. was very communal. Yeah. And oh, so, yeah. man. So, um, anyway. Well, and, of course, nobody cleaned or anything. But, well, yeah. You know. That's got to be, that's ridiculous. And you couldn't hire anyone to do it. Right? I mean, it, didn't, it wasn't like now where you can hire like a maid to come in. Like that was, would be unthinkable during that era. <laughs> yeah. You can go to the... Uh, you know, the co-ops in Berkeley today, and they're a lot filthier than any of the hippie houses I ever lived in. Yeah. Um, well, let's, now let's, because I, I want to get to everything. So right. let's, so let's fast forward a little bit. All right. So this, this, this is all going really well. People are having a good time. Yes. But at some point, this takes a, a turn for the worse. And what do you think did that, and what do you th what happened? Well, first of all, about 100,000 young people arrived in San Francisco during the quote-unquote summer of love. The word got out that San Francisco was the place to be, and there was this song, if you're going to San Francisco, you better wear some flowers in your hair. I forgot the artist, I have his name in this tract that I've written, but sure. I won't look it up at this moment. <laughs> right, yeah. But at any rate, all that began. Um, and uh, San Francisco was also a very straight town. I mean, it was not what it is today. In, I mean, it was just very conventional. And this town, all these kids arrived. I mean, we're talking kids from 15 to 25 primarily. Right. A lot of them are runaways. A lot of them hate their parents. A lot of them, you know, don't have any money at all. And so they arrive in this city scene, and they don't know how to take care of themselves. They have no—they've thrown caution to the wind— 
maybe they started dropping acid when they were 14. Wow. You know, so, you know, it, it's not in their thinking that any of this could be dangerous or that they have to watch out for this and that. And of course, you get that number of people in a city scene, um, you have you have vultures, you have people who will take advantage of, especially the young girls, mm -hmm. but anyone, I mean, there was a lot of, in the Haight-Ashbury, there was a lot of thievery. Um, the mm. drug dealing got to be, it wasn't like handing out free acid. I mean, Owsley was sort of like um, Johnny Appleseed. You know, he, 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 <laughs> he thought it was the most wonderful thing that he'd ever experienced, and he so, wanted everybody to have some. Right. And money wasn't the issue. And it was cheap. I mean, it was you know not expensive to do these things. So, but some people got greedy and decided that they wanted to make money. Um, they started to market uh, methamphetamine. It's mm. really when meth got started uh, in the world. It's all these chemicals like that are created. I mean, it's all these drugs created in a laboratory. Yeah. yeah. And to be fair, Owsley started out as a meth manufacturer, but uh, and he was working for the mob for a period of time. And uh, he quit that when he started making LSD because he didn't believe in it anymore, and they almost killed him. The mob, the yeah. mob almost killed him because he would cease, he wouldn't make meth for them any longer. Wow! But that's how he got to start uh, in drug manufacturing is with a methamphetamine lab. He was like the Heisenberg of uh, 1967. Heisenberg? Clearly not a Breaking Bad fan. Um, oh, right. Well, I hate, as, as I've told you, I hate, I watched it once and it's so disgusting. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good show. Um, no, it's morally bankrupt. Go that, ahead. Well, that it, it is and it isn't, but this is not a All discussion right. about Breaking Bad, although it should be. I hate methamphetamine. So. Uh, well, no, I do. <laughs> I'm not suggesting. Um, so, so, so that kind of kicked off the, the, the turn. So people were running away, coming there, rampant yeah, drug Yeah, and there use. were a lot of fun things that happened in San Francisco too during the summer of love but by the end of the summer um, you had the harsh reality of people who were poorly clothed people who were poorly fed people who got sick um, just with normal things like you know respiratory infections and you know I mean just the usual stuff that happens to people, but also, frankly, with the venereal disease that was untreated. And so that became a serious problem by 1967. That's when the free clinic opened in the Haight-Ashbury and started to try to treat people mm. and put a stop to the spread of venereal disease. Because, you know, everybody had the clap and everybody had syphilis and everybody had this. And I mean, I didn't, but uh, yeah. it was pretty common. Yeah. And you had to start to be careful. Wow. And so we got more careful, those of us who were sane. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and this is the same year. So towards the end, this is the year of Woodstock, which was kind of something that... Woodstock is 69. 69. So we're, we're fast forwarding again. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So we're, we're, running, we're running short on time. Okay. Um, so, so when we hit, you know, 69 was kind of the last year of the movement, really, like towards the end, because Woodstock happened... Um, which started as a small music festival and ballooned into this huge thing on a farm. Yeah, Woodstock was great. Um, Woodstock, w I was not there. Um, I was doing something else that summer. But um, what made Woodstock great was the presence of um, Wavy Gravy uh, and the, the people who handled security at Woodstock just did a fantastic job making mm. sure that the... The physical needs of the people who gathered there were well taken care of. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, they made a mess of the field and so on, but the music happened and the, the half a million people or a million people came, who knows how many, and everybody came and it had a good time. And I don't know if maybe there was a death or two, but you know, it was not a disaster the way Altamont was a year, a year later. Yeah, and what happened in Altamont? Uh, the Hells Angels handled security, and the Hells Angels were assholes and mm. armed. And um, during um, the Rolling Stones set, a man was murdered directly in front of the stage, 10 feet in front of Mick Jagger wow. singing. No kidding. Yeah. Just murdered in cold blood, or what did he, had he done something? Uh, here, I, I mentioned there were vultures. One of the things that happened during that era is that the um, ghetto blacks who lived in the Fillmore District in San Francisco thought free love, cool, we'll go rape a bunch, bunch of white women. And that's uh. what they did. Uh, Meredith Hunter was the one who was murdered. He was a black guy. He brought a gun to the to Altamont. Of course, there's no security, no, no metal detectors. Everybody uh, right. is a, whatever they're armed with, they're armed with. And he brought a gun. Well, he pulled the gun out. The, um, you know, the... Hell's Angels had been heavily criticized for killing him, but the fact is that the Hell's Angel who killed him probably saved Mick Jagger's life because Meredith Hunter was pointing the gun at Mick Jagger when oh. he tackled Meredith Hunter and stabbed him to death. No kidding. Yeah. Stabbed him? Right. But it was ugly is the point. Yeah. And it wasn't ugly at Woodstock. So Altamont was where it began to get ugly. And you also had pretenders. Manson was a hippie pretender. He mm -hmm. wasn't a hippie. He, had, he, had, I mean, he was a common street criminal who figured out that if he just dressed a certain way and played his guitar a certain way, he could get a bunch of girls to follow him around. And so Charlie's girls were devoted to him. And he was an evil man and remains an evil man. If you know anything about Manson or who he is or how crazy he is, unfortunately, the hippie movement by late 1969 got co-opted by some really shady characters. Yeah, it got progressively more and more um, watered down and distorted the original message, which we haven't gotten into at all, by the way. Yeah. So if we're going to talk about hippies, we should do that at some point. Well, let's, let's so, because the argument I make is that at the, that, that kind of marked the end of the movement, was that Manson you know, went on the killing spree that made the national papers and he tied it to music and it was, you know, falsely attributed, you know, the, the, the hippie movement was falsely, he was falsely tied he into tarnished that. the image yeah. of what hippies really stood for. Yeah. And that kind of ended the movement essentially. I and mean, then there's no, a lot of it didn't end no backlash it. from that nationally. Well, yes. People were reluctant to rent to hippies after that. Um, I mean, specifically, I mean, Manson rented a couple of places up in the north in the Mendocino area and trashed the places. Okay, now most hippies didn't trash the places. Well, not, I mean, at least by our standards, we didn't. Right, I was going to say it sounded like there wasn't much cleaning going on. But. <laughs> not much cleaning going on, but we didn't burn places down. We didn't, <laughs> right. you know, right, we didn't right. conduct mass murders. Right, uh, yes, I mean, it was, that's true. It was, um, it really was about love and peace. Yeah. Well, let's, and let's when get you to speak of free love, that's it was an experiment in how far you can take this idea of not being jealous, for example. In other words, can you maintain love for your love interest even though your love interest has a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Can you, can you be big enough to love people 
without all the conditions that we were raised with, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a very high-minded kind of idealism that drove that free love, quote-unquote. We never called it free love. It wasn't free love. It was, in fact, um, people who came thinking that, well, hippie chick will sleep with anyone, didn't get any. I mean, that mm. isn't how it worked. It was based on a feeling. If you had uh, a feeling of closeness and affection, yes, sex was on the table. And sex was on the table with more than one person if that feeling was there. That's what hippies were about. Not just let's get it off, get it on with anyone who we come across. Yeah. And then the, the drug aspect was to open your mind to the, to the ideals, to the just kind of open it in general. You've, have you ever taken acid? I have not. Have you ever taken mescaline or peyote or any of these things? I, I, magic mushrooms? I have not. <clears throat> What LSD does is it, um, for uh, the subjectively, it, um, it breaks down the social conditioning that you have been raised with and leaves you with yourself and direct perceptions of the physical and emotional realities around you. So you're very sensitive to other people's um, uh, thought projections towards you, their vibe, quote unquote. Mm. I mean, you know that becomes a real thing and an important thing, and so it makes you uh, care about that more, and it makes you care about not bumming people out, not maintaining a maintaining love. Maintaining love is probably the best way to say it. Not having that as a secondary motive or just something you talk about in Sunday school or but really practicing what Christ preached which is to love one another and so that becomes important when you're stoned on LSD it becomes important because if someone is is hating you it, it's like a dagger through your heart you have no defenses and so you feel it and you don't want to you don't want to feel that but you also don't want to cause that for anyone else so you develop a um, way of being that is um, uh, harmless and loving and that's what hippies paid real attention to that's that was the religion it's really a Christian uh, concept I mean if there is anything that Christ preached above all else it was to love one another he didn't get into a lot of dogma he didn't get into a lot of sexual preaching said almost nothing about sex he didn't get into a lot about much of anything except that you ought to take this seriously. You ought to really love one another. Mm. Well, that is, I think, a great place to end it. Um, that is a great tie-up um, on this wild ride that is the hippie movement. James, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me, and thanks to everyone for listening. Good night. <laughs>